welcome to the Brookie and Burjo podcast. Great to have you with us. My name's uh, I'm Brookie, uh, aka Peter Bruckner, and Burjo's somewhere around. Where are you, Burjo? Uh, in Adelaide, mate. Ah, good. Um, good to have you with us. Not too many options at the moment, but uh, yeah, I hope you're well. <laughs> we're good. We're good. Why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, it's an absolute privilege and pleasure to to welcome Professor Sam Robertson from uh, VU, amongst other many many sort of areas, which we'll get into. Good day, Sam. Morning. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for being on here, mate. Sam, we usually start off by uh, by asking our guests to uh, to take us through their journey. Um, so, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you started and, and how you got into this field. Sure. Well, thanks. I need to go back a little bit and reflect a little bit on that. I don't think my journey is particularly interesting, but I guess like a lot of people working in in sport, it's a combination of lots of different factors, lots of different experiences, which kind of shape where you go. And I guess there's a couple of critical junctures through there as well, but yeah, my introduction to sport was actually uh, after university and everything was in, into golf was my first love, first sport. It's actually what I did my PhD in. I don't do much in the sport anymore, but I, I worked with various kind of national programs in that area. That was my, my first job back in the uh, the old days when the Australian program was based down where I grew up in the Mornings Peninsula. Uh, I then did a couple of stints over in the UK, uh, one in golf, in fact, but in some other sports, multi-sports as well, uh, two different stints in the, in the 2000s and and then I guess one of those critical junctures was I, I came back home to Australia in around 2007, 2008 and did did my PhD at that point uh, over in Western Australia. And uh, that's probably where my love or transition into the, the area I work in today started, which was is into the, that data area. I, I did a PhD, which was quite a blend of biomechanics and performance analysis and it quickly morphed into things like complexity theory and, and statistics. So it was a, a real multidisciplinary uh, PhD and and it's also when I started getting involved in Australian football I did a, a fair bit of work over there before coming back to Melbourne and doing a quick stint in in academia at Deakin University and and then I came across to, to Victoria University uh, which I guess was another one of those critical junctures to really drive sports science and innovation with their partnership with the Western Bulldogs and and that was uh, the same week the current head coach Luke Beveridge started so uh, into that 2015 AFL season. We had a couple of uh, really obviously successful years then and um, and then I, I transitioned out of there around 2018 and and where I am today, which is a really fortunate position being able to, I guess, drive commercial and research opportunities and partnership opportunities for the university. And then I guess a large part of that as well is, is ongoing kind of research and consulting with a whole heap of sports, mainly the team sports around the world, the professional sports like uh, basketball, baseball, uh, still Australian football and, and tennis. So I'm really blessed in being able to, I guess, get a good lens over I'll probably say 10, 10 sports at any one time, which is really lucky. So that's the short version, shortish. <laughs> that is a very short version, mate, but um, <laughs> uh, we appreciate that. I guess... Um, I wouldn't mind taking you back to the Western Bulldogs time. You're, you're sort of underselling it. You, you guys won the won the uh, title in in uh, 2016, but but more so than that, um, as I recall, being working for Port Adelaide at the time, you guys were the sort of envy of of the league in terms of the way you'd set up your relationship with VU. Um, uh, or way that you representing VU had set up your relationship with the Bulldogs. Can you talk us through some of the um, sort of benefits of having the the students flow through, but also some of the sort of pitfalls? Because uh, it, mm. it seems in this post-COVID world, as 
um, uh, an attractive option is to to have as many PhD students as you can. Uh, but but I imagine there were some uh, negatives to that arrangement as well. Yeah, and it's the thing about this question is it's a constantly moving beast, and you've given a great example of that right now in terms of COVID. That's created challenges and created opportunities. The we learn a lot. There's no question. That was really the, I guess, the crescendo of that partnership in terms of the sports performance, sports science area. We had Dr. John Bartlett there as well at the time, who's is now in New York with the NBA, uh, and he actually went to the Gold Coast Suns after that. So we had a, a, a large stable of PhD students at that time, I think around six, uh, and it might have even peaked at seven at one point in time, all doing different things, all of whom have gone on to work at really high level in sport. So we're, we're really proud of that, I guess, John and I, when we catch up around how that all uh, turned out. I still learn lessons all the time about that partnership and apply them off to other partnerships that we've got running in some of those sports I talked about earlier. But there's no question one of the main things that was why we had success then was the fact that John and I were genuinely embedded at the organisation and we didn't have the pressure of the university wanting us back over on campus. And so the students had that constant touch point uh, around their supervision of their research, but also we had a finger on the pulse in terms of what the day-to-day needs of were the organisation of the organisation that they had at that time. And that's tricky. And that, that model doesn't need to always be the model. It, it can just be that there's a, a champion at both organisations uh, and making sure they've got the needs and the desires of, of each organisation reflected. But of course, that that changes as well. And John and I both grew out of that role and hence went on to, he went on to do things that he was more interested in or wanting in his career. And I went on to doing things I was more interested in. Mine was more research and big picture projects. His was more in, in high performance sports science. And that's, that's okay. And I think that's probably a, a, one of the challenges in this area is we, high performance sport doesn't change that much, really. Um, <laughs> a high performance manager year, I mean, you know this better than most, it, it changes from year to year to an extent, but really the, your job is the same. Whereas uh, a young academic is, I guess we were relatively young at the time, uh, probably less so now, but uh, we're on a journey and we're, we're looking to move through. So uh, that's that's some of the things that have changed throughout that, that journey. And then also just the maturity of the organisation itself. Yeah, we were doing things in 15 that I think were really pushing the envelope of I guess, sports science, in, at least in Australian football at the time, but you've got to keep coming up with new ideas and new things and personnel changes uh, happen, coach changes happen, and things have shelf lives. And I think that's a really mature view that we've developed of partnerships that some of them aren't forever. And some of those ones that you want to be that are keep that are ongoing, I suppose, you need to find different angles to or bring new fresh personnel in. So there's a whole host of les- lessons, but they're, they're a couple, I suppose. Oops, sorry about that. If you were to um, go down that path again um, with an organisation, and, and you, you certainly, um, I'm thinking more in the eyes of the student here necessarily than the organisation. What, uh, and you certainly, I, I, I couldn't imagine counting the number of PhD students you've supervised over the last sort of 10 years, um, but what's your advice with the student? because it would be the attractive option to go within a sporting team. Um, do you think, uh, it might be a slightly dangerous question, but do you think that's the best pathway? I'm sure it's horses for courses, but what what might be some of the 
words of wisdom that you would give to potential PhD students out there who are looking to have a placement <laughs> at a at a uh, elite sporting club? It, it is a careful question. There's one who's just about to start with that organisation next week, and he he probably <laughs> listened to this at some point. So I'll need to make sure I'm true to the advice sure. I gave him. No, I. It is, yeah, of course, it's horses for courses, but starting with the end in mind is obviously crucial. And the problem with that is you don't always know where you, well, you think you know where you want to go at the end of your PhD, but you don't always get that right. I certainly don't work exactly in the area that I, I did in my PhD anymore. That's that's crucial. And the the problem with that is as well that that can sometimes distract the student from the work that's at hand. So if you make it all about, I want to be a high performance manager at the end of my PhD, or I want to be an expert in um, endocrinology in sport or exercise, then the problem with that is you can take the, everyone's in a hurry these days, particularly PhD students, and you take your eye off the ball very quickly. Uh, And again, I've had a number of students that have experienced that. The other challenge is a really obvious one. It's a really practical one, which is you can get distracted by what's going on in the sporting club. You can get involved in extracurricular activities. And the problem is that most of those are actually going to be advantageous for your career. So you've got to balance that. And then some of them, the students who actually don't want those opportunities, those extra opportunities within a professional club, they might have them thrust upon them, I guess, by the, the organisation. So this is certainly linked not only to having those champions on both sides, those experienced people that can, I guess, put the finger in the air and get a litmus test in terms of, okay, is this student doing enough of their research? Are they reading enough? Are they writing enough? Uh, are they collecting their data? Are they getting the hands-on experience? Uh, so that's that's where those roles are really, I guess, important. Uh, so, yeah, it, it is. It's a case-by-case basis. But I, I think there's always going to be a place for those discipline-specific experts. And if I think about it at the university here, there's people that go into the lab and, and never come out of it in four years. We need basic science. I mean, that is we always have and we always will. Uh, but at a general rule, these uh, generalists or multidisciplinary talented people in the in the high performance sport area are becoming more and more valuable. And I don't think we've even hit the crescendo there of, of what's going to happen in that space. Sam, there's there's a reason why I guess you know, not a lot of research is done in elite sport because it's it's very challenging to uh, it's much yeah. easier to to do your research on students and people who do, who are prepared to do what you tell them to do. Um, take us through some of the way you sort of uh, manage that uh, that element because uh, you know I, I've certainly always found it really difficult to to get any research done in uh, at elite sport levels. Yeah, and it's a real concern. Not a concern. I, I think it's a real pertinent point right now i mean we you look at a lot of the publishing that's going on in this day and age and there's a lot of case studies n equals one or n equals five coming out of the 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 high level codes and and that makes sense we want to know what the best footballers in the world are doing and we can take something from that but we need to weight that evidence appropriately i'm a big believer in i guess i've always called it covert research or covert monitoring or whatever word you want to want to do want to give it certainly with a lot of the projects I'm fortunate in in our area that we were really uh, advocating for at the time, a lot of the data we wanted to collect could be done in that way. And I think the the biggest development in that space in sport has been video. There's no question, particularly fixed video and automated, semi-automated video. We can track a lot of what our athletes do around a facility. I think the mind naturally turns to the playing field. We can track what they're doing there, but we can track what they're doing off the the field as well or off the court uh, in many senses. 
So we were lucky in a lot of the things that we wanted to look at were done in that way. Uh, they were done in situ. The athletes, even though they were aware the cameras were there and a lot of things we were doing, they they quickly forget about them and they act quite naturally. Yeah, it, it's a lot harder to run a randomised control trial. Uh, it's probably unethical on a lot of things as well. So there are limitations. And, yeah, I would say I, I'd, be, I'd take a fair bit of convincing to say for someone to, to tell me that, that's the purpose of sport. I think that's where the research piece is staying to drag us away from what professional sport is about, which is, of course, performance and, and the athlete needs to be front and centre to that. And that's starting to move away from that. And that does create a challenge because we need to then, like you were saying, Brookie, uh, in terms of can we actually generalise across things we've found with a group of college students? Uh, if we found it a, an effect in some kind of new drug trial, uh, does that actually extend over and work with our elite athletes? And that's that's where the gap in the knowledge often exists, as we know. So if you were, let's say, a, a sporting club, some sort of football code, as an example, comes to you and says, you know, well, what can what can you do? What can data do do for us? How would you sort of present that in in a few lines? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a challenge trying to do it so quickly. But I mean, I think. Uh, I'm going to hijack your question a little bit. Uh, I mean, there's been a explosion of data. There's no secret to that. I think that's overwhelmingly a good thing, and that's that will come no as no surprise to both of you. I'm sure that I say that. Uh, but we're at a, a very interesting stage with that because a lot of the key steps that we're all taught as scientists when we go through our training to check the quality of that data. Not only in, is it accurate, is it valid, is it reliable, but also is it which is equally important, is it actually answering a problem that needs answering, genuinely needs answering, and it's going to inform a decision? Uh, these are two fundamental questions that are getting skipped a lot. And that's there's very human reasons for that. You, you, you put a GPS system in front of someone uh, that gives them nice flashy numbers on a, on a beautiful user experience that can print out in an automated report. I'm going to use that before going and doing a heap of tests that take me time, effort, and energy to go and... Um, run run a whole heap of conduct tests that the coach or the athletes might not be happy with, even if that data is more important. So we're at an interesting point there in terms of how do we weight these things. So I get a lot of students coming, or prospective students and staff for that matter, coming to me and wanting to upskill in coding uh, and these areas of data. And, and sure, there's a massive value in doing that in terms of what they can provide to an organisation. But there is no way in my mind that I would be, if, if I had a blank slate or a blank canvas with a, a new student, that I'd be telling them to go and uh, go down, a, uh, spend a year getting as good as they can in R or Python if they don't have those fundamentals about how do they ask a good question and one that's going to help the organisation and help themselves and also how do they, uh, well, to, to quote the late Carl Sagan, how do they have a good bullshit detector on this data as well to make sure it's giving them what they think it's giving them? <laughs> So it's um it's a it's a fascinating topic because if if I've probably had conversations uh, and previously the the demons we uh, just employed a sports scientist and one of the things that we were really keen to get is somebody with coding skills who also uh, had experience in the industry and um, uh, in the high performance world of decision making and and fast actions and. Um, high pressure, high consequence environment. 
So you would probably advocate based on your answer then that the person immersed themselves in an environment similar to that before going down the, the sort of coding pathway, because I reckon the reverse is happening or, or the, the um, while people are waiting to get jobs in the industry, they're going, well, I'll upskill myself better by mm. uh, learning code. How, how might that, how might you tell a young graduate uh, to do things differently? Well, it's it's definitely harder to have that bullshit detected I talked about. And it's it's probably harder to have a really well-grounded view of measurement as well in terms of those, what I used to think were basic skills. I'm not sure are basic skills that we're teaching in undergraduate or postgraduate university anymore, which is another topic for another day. But reliability, validity, uh, objectively questioning, even, even designing a question <laughs> appropriately, I think that gets glossed over a lot. I, I'm a big stickler and I saw my students hate it, but every single word in your research question needs to have, be serving a purpose in that question. It, it needs to be very clear. And if, I'm not saying don't go out and learn code. Uh, I think that is advantageous. The problem arises when they're trying to jam it all into their PhD. And okay, so you're gonna go and work at the coalface. You're gonna do a match day role with a professional sporting team. You're gonna read the literature in an area that you don't know anything about. You're gonna learn code as well you've got a boyfriend or girlfriend on the side you want to have your work-life balance because they all want that now uh, you, you're not getting you're not getting it done you're just not <laughs> and so invariably two or three years in you have a, a a point in time where they this hopefully dawns on them earlier but they realize this and so again i've just seen it happen and and some people that have have had this issue have gone on and had successful careers i've got a couple of people in mind and but it definitely took them off the rails for a couple of years because they were, I guess, missing a, a few steps. So, yeah, I, I just think a part, the tricky part is a lot of this stuff does, does come from experience. I've got no question in my mind that I am better now than I was 10 years ago at putting a question into the practical terms that a coach needs to see it than I was 10 years ago. There's no question. Sure. And so that's the tricky part how can we accelerate students to to guess i guess get out of that data fog so to speak and actually see the really practical easy or simple question earlier so uh flowing on from that a little bit i guess is that uh when when people think of sports science they immediately go to gps mm. um and and uh this this load management um you know i, I did my phd primarily using GPS technology. So it, it sort of uh, broke my heart slowly to hear some of your discussions around your well-educated and well-researched well discussions around a lot of the pitfalls of using GPS. Can you just sort of summarize uh, where the industry, I think, is going wrong um, in, in the reliance on GPS for, for load management and performance and injury prediction? I think you sort of touched on it briefly earlier on in, in terms of making sure your data is actually um, telling you what you think it is um, or advising you what you think it is. Uh, where have we got that wrong with the reliance on GPS currently? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the poor old catapults of the world and, uh, and other companies probably think I'm constantly having a go at them, but I, I've, I would have published 40-odd papers using catapult systems over the years, and I think it's been a fantastic tool, and it's been overwhelmingly good for sport and sports science in particular. So I'd say that up front. But, and, and again, they are a victim somewhat of their own success, some of these companies, because as I said, 
you make it easy for people to use and turn on and have access to and, and print out a report, it's it's going to get front and centre. And it's a classic human bias, availability bias. It's it's in front of them. And and there's no question, there's a, sorry, there's no surprise that people will gravitate towards it as a result. But it, yeah, it comes back to the two points I, ma- I mentioned earlier. Is the data accurate and valid and reliable? Well, yeah, largely it's pretty good these days. It's improved a lot compared to what it was. But is it valid for the problem at hand in terms, does it help us to answer a problem. So load monitoring, well, again, that can depend on who you talk to about what the point of load monitoring is. If we're trying to prevent an injury, well, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole today, but yeah, we can debate whether the GPS is helping or hindering or, or doing close to zero in, in that conversation. Uh, from a performance perspective, we've got a long way to go. And there's a lot of people looking at it in this area and have looked at it in Australian football. And I guess Australian football's led the way there, but yeah, we're conducting some work in, in other sports now around that about how it can actually be used to to actually relate to performance because a long time for a long time there people perhaps thought it was a, a as a, a little bit of a better performance marker than it, it actually is. And again, we we look at this notion of change. Uh, I don't think GPS will be around much in the future. Uh, I've changed my tune on that because of what I've seen what's happened with optical tracking. Um, I'm not trying to uh, be negative on the technology. As I said, I think it's been transformative, but you've got to keep an eye on the future as well. Now, it, it's tempting to say that optical tracking is like for like, but of course we know that it's it's not exactly the same and there's things that it won't be able to give us that GPS has, but there's other things it might be able to do, such as limb tracking and uh, it's essentially tracking different parts of the human as well. So Again, this is an important part of sports science. I'm getting off topic a little bit, but about keeping an eye on this because a lot of organisations can invest very heavily in a piece of tech rather than the question. And that's when you run into into problems when your tech becomes redundant, uh, sometimes overnight. And uh, again, you're stuck with your methodology and your systems revolving around that. So I think athlete tracking is a good example of that. Sam, I'm obviously interested in injury and so on. And, uh, you know, the, the holy grail's always been injury prediction, hasn't it? I mean, there's been all sorts of uh, mm. algorithms and, you know, people coming up with all sorts of fancy... Uh, where are we at with injury prediction at the moment? Is, is it, you know, is it impo- a waste of time? Is it impossible? Or uh, where would you uh, see that the science is at at the moment? Well, I'll, I'll never say it's impossible because I'd love for it to happen. I think it'd be <laughs> obviously the, the best thing for sport. Uh, but I'll make some definitive statements and I'm on the record many times around this is that I've seen no one be able to do it. And again, you might ask, well, well, what do you, depends on what you mean by injury prediction, but I haven't seen it work in practice. Uh, and you know, I'll be really open to reading and seeing it done uh, by people around the place, but there's a whole heap of reasons why I'm, I'm quite pessimistic about it at the moment. And I think the areas in particular that we are pursuing are the ones that need the least help. And that's the, the funny thing about it. I don't think better algorithms uh, is going to solve the injury prediction problem. Uh, I think the algorithms are probably largely fine right now. Uh, the main two areas, to, I guess, to summarise my main concerns, are I don't think the quality of the data coming in is anywhere near good enough to give us a very accurate uh, input into what would be happening. And I'm, I guess that follows on from what I just spoke about in terms of the sensors. Um, if you're using output from a GPS sensor to try and look at what's happening in terms of someone's calf strain, 
uh, someone predictive of a calf strain, I think that's a very, very big stretch. And I think we need to stand back from that and have a bit of a look at, you know, maybe check out, again, I'll use the term again, our bullshit detector on that one. And I guess the, the second part of that, which is equally important, perhaps more so, is I don't think we have any idea about how we would operationalise a prediction in practice, not only from a human decision-making perspective, but also from an ethical perspective, uh, data privacy, uh, what's acceptable risk. Uh, if you're going, it, it becomes a race to the bottom very quickly. If you're a sports medicine practitioner, you're not going to want to, I guess, ignore a prediction that says your athlete has a chance of being uh, at risk. The athlete, on the other hand, does not want to get pulled out of training every second uh, opportunity because it's detrimental to their career. Uh, these are fundamental questions that relate to the human experience, not to sport, around the risk-taking behaviours that we make. And we're facing, we're going to face a hell of a lot more of them in the future, of course, as things become more automated and we have uh, predictive algorithms running on all sorts of processes in our day-to-day -day life. We are fundamentally underprepared for this in sport. We, this requires, these are the types of projects we need to be spending time on. So if I come back to your, your PhD question earlier, we need to see less PhDs in general, and we need to see certainly less on very incremental things around uh, some new running metric and or some new way of evaluating performance. And I've done plenty of that research myself, but we need to start to work together and, um, and com less competing between universities, between codes, between even teams in the same competition. To, to really try and, I guess, address some of these big questions like injury. I love the passion that you have there, uh, <laughs> Sam. Um, and I want to follow that up slightly if I can. And we, I did have a couple of other questions that I wanted to ask you, but I really want to sort of nail this. I think the two areas that um, in high-performance sport, we both, we, we try and solve most of one is injury prediction because most coaches will sit here and say, if you give me my best team, um, that will give me the best chance of success. And there's some research around that, which is obvious. And the second is relating tactical to physical. Mm. Um, and by the sounds of it, um, uh, we're not, we're not getting the full picture, which I, I would agree wholeheartedly with um, to finish off the injury stuff before we get to the tactical, because I know you have um, as as much experience as anybody possibly on the planet in a whole range of different sports on this. Um, what what are the initial steps we need to take as somebody who's working not in academia, but somebody who's working in high performance sport? Help me out here. What are the initial steps I need to take to get closer to um, uh, more valid injury surveillance and injury um, anticipation, we'll call it? Well, I mean, it's it's really tricky because the short answer I would have to that is storytelling, creating a narrative that is going to ensure that your powers that be are comfortable that you're doing what you need to do to prevent possible injury or possible risk of injury. And to me, that the best, the most, uh, I guess, it's not the best approach right now, but it's the most pragmatic in terms of it's going to cost you the less, least amount of time and money would be creating that narrative. And the narrative would be something along the lines of just separating the, the noise from the actual injury. So, for example, uh, this is the natural variability in the injury rates we're going to see from year to year or month to month at an Australian football league club. 
this is the potential effect of any intervention that we're going to do, which is smaller than the noise itself. So, for example, right now, I'd, I'd be staggered if there's any intervention that an Australian football club or any club could do that would have less noise than the actual inherent randomness or random noise that would be in a season to season or a month to month. Uh, we often look and see patterns where there aren't any. Uh, we see a club have two ACLs and we think that there's something wrong with their program. That's a massive jump. There might be something wrong with it, but equally, it, it, it may not be. They might be exposed to two conditions that they've never been exposed to uh, uh, before. There might be chronic things going on before that that have contributed as well, sure. Uh, but what I'm saying is there's going to need to be a lot of effort from a lot of stakeholders to improve that. Not only – and if you, you go through them, you, you need better tech. That's going to require better tech providers, better input from the startup uh, community. We're going to need to have adequately trained scientific people in the organisation to be able to utilise that tech because it's going to be certainly more um, – more complex than it is right now. And if we've talked about the role of the sports scientist already, sports scientists right now are spending, they're, they're glorified technologists. <laughs> that's what they are. And that's getting away from a lot of things we've talked about already in terms of good asking good questions and having time to reflect on that. Uh, I won't go through the list of all the different stakeholders. What I'm saying is a, a better solution would be to do what I'm talking about now, but you you would need a lot of organisations coming together with a long-term plan, which we often don't get afforded in sport, to solve this problem. Hey, and hey, if it's an organisation that, that wants to do it and you get bored across and say, we're going to give you this amount of much money, we're going to give you 10 years, you can engage with universities, gain with the startup community to develop the tech, develop the um, decision-making software, whatever it is, go for it. But in the short term, something that's going to take you probably two days a week for one of your sports scientists or your data analysts to create a narrative and a story for your board. Um, yeah, I think if I was in your shoes, that's probably what I'd be leading to right now. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think I think the cross code, even cross um, team, I think we're actually getting closer to um, an alliance between uh, performance organisations. I think we're a long way from the ten-year plan, or the ten-year study that you that you mentioned, but. I think there is um, more um, awareness that we need to combine our sort of homogenous environments to 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 try and get a bit of bigger picture. But the problem is the day-to-day -day nature and the week-to-week -week, um, accountability that we have, um, and that that can cloud the judgment, as as you know better than most. Um, on the next topic, because I'm sure um, uh, Brookie might have one or two more questions at the end, but uh, the tactical combined with physical is a is an endless source of frustration for me. I won't go into my sort of thoughts on it because we've got you on on here. Um, the effect of physical on um, perform on on uh, game outcome has been looked at a lot, and I know you're on the AFL rules committee. I don't know if that's um, public. I hope it is because. Um, uh, uh, we, we can edit that out if it's not. But uh, what, what are your thoughts on on coaching and and even even sports scientists and performance analysts that that are looking constantly at the effect of physical on match outcomes? And let, let's take um, soccer and AFL. They're my two loves, so unashamedly, and maybe throwing basketball as well into that mix. 
how can we do that a little bit better and, and what are some of the pitfalls at looking at the, the effect of physical on, on tactical or, or match outcome? Well, yeah, I, I would agree that it is a an area that could be better, but the good news is, unlike the previous example, I think this one is easily more easily solved. Uh, I just want to come back to the injury very quickly because the final thing I would say on that, and you just made me think of it as you wrap that up, is is tinkering around with longitudinal studies and, and trying to dig right in the injury problem actually what we want our athletes and our staff spending time on in a high-performance environment? That's another question um, because I think it can be a distraction and, and take time and resource away. That's just one more to leave, I guess, the listeners with. But coming back to the physical and the tactical, this is this is where the, the undoubtedly the, the sports scientists and data scientists can and should be playing a, a major role. Uh, I guess to get into the weeds a little bit at this stage, one of the issues we've had with connecting physical and, and technical has been that we've been using very, we, we treat things as discrete. We think we treat events as discrete in sport, uh, which is, which is fair enough. I mean, I think we say here's a kick and a handball in Australian football. Here's a shot on goal in, in the world game. Uh, but of course, nothing in the world happens in, <laughs> discreetly. It's all part of something continuous. And certainly when we talk about tactics, tactics, and game style and um, gameplay is all continuous. And it's the same with physical. Again, a, a lot of the early research that we looked at with tracking data was discrete. It was, this is someone's meters per minute. This is their maximum speed. This is how much distance they've covered. And, you know, I think if we look at football, I think probably, you know, Paul Bradley at Liverpool, John Moores has, has done some, um, and, and as well as the guys at Everton have done some good work on that, uh, published some good work on that. I'm, I'm sure people have done work um, inside clubs as well. Uh, and that, that's been more chunking the game into uh, segments of time or, or around some of those discrete events and starting to unpack the continuous data. I think that's the next the next step there in terms of not just was what was the velocity that you reached in a certain period of the game, but also uh, what was your velocity trace? What was your acceleration trace? Uh, I think probably Grant Duthie here in Australia does some great work on that in the rugby codes uh, in terms of What's that shape look like? Because I think if we have that live or that raw 20 hertz, 50 hertz, 100 hertz velocity data, acceleration data, change of direction data, we can start, that's that's really useful because we can start to connect that to good things that happen in a match, but also connect that to in, informing the way that we train in terms of our not only our performance type training, but our rehabilitation. Uh, if we know with very fine-grained detail of what a striker does in a football match when they are creating an opportunity to score. That is something, of course, we have video that can help our rehab people organise that, but to have that matching samples from a tracking system in training and in competition is something that's really valuable, I think, there. I guess the tricky part with all of this is the two parts of tactical and physical are... Uh, we don't control in any – I think there's this assumption sometimes that players are in control of what they do in a match, but we they are constantly responding to the environment around them, and you can't really replicate that in a one-on-one a -on -one rehab condition. Oh, that's no surprise to anyone, but the point is uh, we might find a particular run or a particular type of physical characteristic in an athlete that looks predictive of performance or predicting of something good that's happening, but – if we don't create the environment around them in training, we're not sure if that's going to transfer over. So between the physical and the tactical. Um, so that's a really, a really tricky part of, of that. And I guess the other part in all this is 
when you talk about tactical, it also opens up, I guess, areas that are even less well measured in sport, which is that psychological, the coaching, the learning part as well. Uh, you know, it's all well and good saying that when someone uses a certain tactic, they tend to have this physical output and it's a good thing. But what about the communication that they're getting from their teammates, from the coaches? How is that playing a role? And that's probably the next frontier. So I think probably moving forward, you'll start to see research into that, how the psychological, the communication piece fits in with the tactical and the physical. That's probably a natural progression there. Yeah, I think it, um, and I'm conscious of time here, um, one of the challenges I have with some of the, the research around in this space is that um, if we try and marry the load, so your example there was perfect, what does a striker do to before he or she scores a goal and can we recreate that if he or she is injured? Um, we can certainly recreate the load or, or get fairly close to that. So, you know, you sprinted at 30 kilometres an hour for this goal, let's make sure you can get to that before we put you back into practice or whatever it might be. Um, should we in that rehab process be attempting to create as best as we can or recreate as best as we can the context behind it or um, because of the the examples that you just gave um, you know crowd and noise and and mm. all those sorts of things that we can't do um, should we just ensure that structurally uh, tissue at the level of the tissue, we've exposed that player to that load in mm -hmm. the rehab setting? If we try to do both, are we taking a little bit away from each of them? Yeah, you reminded me of you reminded me of uh, of something that Dave Martin says a lot here, which is you know what's which is really that notion of marginal gains or when's the point of diminishing returns here in in yes. What's enough? What is a, there's a little bit of a hurdle here. And this is where the question that you're asking there is a really practical one. That's where it really nicely interfaces with the research. So again, this notion of, I'm going to call it representative design, which you would argue you can never, ever represent competition perfectly in practice for the reasons you just gave. We can't pack out a stadium with 80,000 people. So what, coming back to the example, what are what are non-negotiables? What do we have to recreate? And this is where research, we still need to do more research on this because we think the load is the most important thing. And certainly from your perspective, it probably is with given your role. But if I'm a coach, what's the most important thing in that exercise that we replicate? What's the answer to that? Um, it could be something we don't expect. It may be for some players, it literally could be crowd noise. And again, I think there's some of this has been looked at in Australian football, goal kicking, for example. And, you know, we know that uh, there's been some improvements in that over time, but it, probably not as much as in other areas of the game. So I'm not sure we, we know the answer to those questions as much as we, we perhaps think we might. Sam, we're just uh, we're nearly out of time, unfortunately. But, uh, this is fascinating. I just want to finish by you've, You've uh, done a lot of consulting um, and it's a credit to you that you've been asked to, uh, to come into organisations around the world and, and review their, uh, their setups and so on. Can you just give us, without you know, anything sort of too specific, but just can you give us a bit of a, an overview on the way you would approach, you know, let, let's say you're asked to, to come into a, a major professional sporting club, say in the US, whatever, uh, mm. and review their, their sort of setup in the, in the sort of uh, performance area. What what are the how do you go about that and and what are the sort of things that you uh, that you look for? Well, it depends on which level that you you're working 
at. But I would say that if I had a blank canvas, the two things that I would start with would be clarity. So clarity on the overall mission of the, the organization, clarity on departmental goals, clarity on the position descriptions for the individuals. This all sounds like 101, but it's not done that well across yeah. the board. So that's definitely one. And then a, all of the research that we know in any workplace is around psychological safety. So not only clarity, but you have the, the beauty of clarity is it does set you somewhat, sets you boundaries about what your role entails. And then you have safety. You have, you're safe in the knowledge to go to work every day as a staff member, knowing that you are going to be able to work within those boundaries without fear of reprisal or, um, or an unsafe or a un, uh, satisfactory work environment. So that's they're the, they're the two things at a high level. And then I guess the things underneath that, uh, grounding things in evidence when we can and going back and evaluating decisions properly as well. These are two things that are not particularly done well as uh, across the board. So I spend a lot of time on that as well. And I, I guess the, the fun fun stuff when I'm, in, when I'm in the field in the high performance area is just that kind of Socratic method that challenging dogma, challenging tradition, uh, particularly in sports I haven't worked in before. It's always fun to say, well, why do you train this way? Why do you do this? And a lot of the time, it's not granted in evidence. And I'm not bashing on sport. I think it's the same in a lot of fields, but it's actually amazing to go back and through it, how little evidence actually surrounds a lot of things that we do in high performance sport. That's a topic for another day. But yeah, that they're, they're the areas I tend to start at. How important is, do you think it is for practitioners uh, to work in different sports? You know, you said yourself that, you know, you, you ask questions of, of sports you don't know and so on. Because I mean, obviously, you know, there are some people who go down the path of they, they focus on on football or, or whatever mm. and spend their life in that. I mean, uh, take us through the pros and cons of, of sort of jumping between sports. If you had the opportunity, I think it's definitely advisable. Uh, but I don't think that's always just because you're working in different sports. It's actually just more you're getting exposed to different structures and different people. So if I come back to someone that wants to spend their entire career in a football, that's fine, provided that you have opportunity to grow and you have opportunities. Uh, and I, I gave the example earlier around uh, that's okay if you don't. I don't think that a, a sport should be ostracised or, or told that it's it's not working well because it's not accommodating a high-performance manager or a sports scientist that wants to expose themselves to different things. They're one, they're one piece in that organisation. The organisation might have a very clear plan about where they're headed and it's therefore incumbent on that person to go and leave and, and go and do something else. That's that's fine. I don't think organisations should make concessions, um, it, not all the time at least, to, to keep staff unless there's a good reason to do so. So, yeah, I mean, of course, there's, there's pros and cons, but, it, again, there's so much that you pick up from other sports. It's not just talking to different people and uh, it's also seeing those traditions. It's seeing what the mistakes that have been made over time. Uh Innovation as well, uh, of course. I do a lot of innovation work, but I'm not totally convinced even that it's the role of high-performance sport to be innovative. Um, we have so many different stakeholders around sports now that, are, uh, you know, Darren, you'd have people knocking on your door uh, probably twice a day trying to sell you things, and it's hard to kind of decipher what's um, what's good and what's worth pursuing and what's not. So. But I, I think that's another area in which that that should take people outside of sport. And I think 
lots of people are doing that really well now in terms of that have been around in, in organizations for a long time we're seeing really big sporting codes or sporting organizations now develop partnerships in their city i think that's something we're going to see more of in sport particularly in a post-covid world where they go and develop a partnership with a medical institute or with a uh, a startup accelerator and they learn from them so i think it's the outside of sport lessons that are equally as important in working in different sports yeah fascinating look we're running out of time unfortunately um i'd love to chat this has uh, been fascinating and i think our listeners can certainly see why uh, why you've been so successful and why you're so much in demand around the world to uh, to advise uh, organizations so uh, sam we really appreciate your time and uh, it's been fascinating talking to you so uh Thank you very much. Great. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Great. We'll see you next time. Coming on, Sam. I also want to uh, plug your podcast, which is outstanding. Your conversation recently with Neil Craig and Damien Farrow was just uh, one of the all-time great listens for me. So, um, yeah, certainly fascinating podcast, and thanks for for contributing that to the industry. No, thank you. (laughs) So just tell us the name of the podcast, Sam, so we can our listeners can jump on board. Oh, it's it's called One Track Mind, and you can get it on any platform. And thanks for the free plug there. I didn't put you up to that. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. But honestly, that that was that was that was brilliant. So loved it. Oh, thank you. Thanks, thanks, Sam. Thanks a lot.